0: Way back a long time ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was in college and Ronald Reagan was president. I started off in college as a music major and then God got a a hold of me and I switched my major to Bible and theology. Theology, by the way, is the study of God. Only you have to say it just like that. I always thought I'll never be a preacher because my voice isn't deep enough. Okay, but... I don't, and so, and so I switched majors, and and in, and I took a class with Dr. Yarbrough. Dr. Yarbrough was this guy who was a lumberjack, and God got a hold of him, and then he became a New Testament scholar. And Dr. Yarbrough would only cut his hair twice a year. Just a lumberjack thing, carryover from lumberjack days, and 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 the word on the street at Wheaton was he's so difficult, he's challenging, he's hard, you know, beware of Dr. Yarbrough. Well, I went in as like one of the straight-A students, one of the better Wheaties, and I was like, I'm going to show Dr. Yarbrough I can do it, and and I showed up in class, and I took really good notes, and I listened to what he was saying, and then I turned in, I worked really hard on my first paper, and I was like, oh, this is awesome, And and I kind of, in my paper, I made a case against this guy who had written a book that later I actually spent two years studying with. And, and I made this paper and I submitted it and then I got the paper back. And do you know what grade was on that paper? D minus. <laughs> your geeky pastor who uses words all the time that so your guy's like, what? Words that begin with P. Okay, this guy got a D. And I wanted to cry. And on the very top were two words in giant red pen, gratuitous gossip, exclamation point. Ah! So I panicked and I asked all my friends, what should I do? What should I do? And they're like, dude, you need to go talk to Dr. Yarbrough. That's what you need to do. You <laughs> know, you messed up, buddy. <laughs> and so I, I did and I went in, you know, kind of like, on one knee, Dr. Yabro, <laughs> and, and he, and he, he kind of took me under his wing, actually, and and mentored me and helped me learn how to write papers. In fact, he's the guy that Jenny was very grateful for because there was this debate. I always had this aversion to public displays of affection, and when we were dating in college, I was like, you know, there's a line and we're not going to cross the line because, you know, I'm going to make it to the wedding day. And we're both going to be pure and obey God and all this other stuff. And, and it was Dr. Yarbrough who sat me down and, and said, if you like her, you need to kiss her. Right? <laughs> that was Dr. Yarbrough. Thank you, Dr. Yarbrough. OK, so I went on in classes and Dr. Yarbrough kept telling me. Max, you need to go on. You need to go on. You need to, get a, you need to get more graduate work. You need to go on and get a Ph.D. And so Jenny and I decided to stay at Wheaton, and we, we got another, we got our a, a first graduate degree, okay? And then the people there kept saying, well, you need to go on. You need to keep studying. You need to get a doctorate, and, and, and you need to go to Asbury. I'd never heard of Asbury, uh, so we looked, and, and for some reason, uh, we pulled the liver, the lever and came to Asbury. And... The first year that we lived here, we lived in Nicholasville, thankfully. We never lived in Wilmore. It's a little too scary. But, but I, remember, I remember Jenny crying a lot. We would go to Kroger and she would cry. Just because there's cigarette butts in the produce you know, when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. Okay. And, and we would go to the mall and she would cry because it was too small, you know, coming from Chicago and just every, everything she would cry. And, and we managed to make it past that year. It was, which was good. We got really involved in a church and we, and we made some friends and, by the time I finished my Asbury program, I had professors that were doing the same thing. You need to go on. You need to go on. You need to get a Ph.D. You need to do this. And so I wasn't one of those 4.0 students by that point, but I had won some awards nationally and locally, and so they kept pushing me in. And so I was like, okay, I will. And I applied to three schools, three schools. And in January of 1997, I received the first letter, and I knew it would be a, a no-thank-you letter because the guy that I would be studying with was going to retire. No-brainer, saw that coming. Dear Mr. Vanderpool, we regret we're not able to offer you admission into our program at this time. How professional is that? That's like, awesome. Thank you for being so kind. No problem. Okay, so February went along. Uh, January, February went along. And then we got into March. Now, Jenny, and Jenny happened to be expecting. That was you, John Mark. And, and so we went in. Uh, on, went one day, we had a, an appointment to go in for an ultrasound to see a better, better picture of what was going on in there, okay? And so uh, on that morning, I went to check the mail before we left, and sure enough, there was a letter from each of the two schools that remained. So on the way to the ultrasound, I tear open the first letter, and this is what it said. Dear Mr. Vanderpool, we regret we are not able to offer you admission into our program at this time. Was like, oh, God made it easy. It's going to be the one thing. We don't even have to choose or decide. God uh, God is so awesome. And I opened that letter, and this is what it said. Dear Mr. Vanderpool, we regret we are not able to offer you admission into our program at this time. For those of you good at math, that's zero for three with a baby on the way. See, we were going to, Jenny was going to stay home, the doctoral stipend was going to be enough for us to live on in a little married student apartment in one of those places, and that was our plan. And we had no backup plan, because, you know, that was the plan. Why do you need a backup plan when you've got a good plan? And so, zero for three, baby on the way, no thing. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, I got a job working as an elementary school janitor. I figured with two graduate degrees, I'm qualified to clean up vomit, and and uh, clean up bathrooms with boys that have no aim. And so I applied and I got the job. And so there you go. What is it? Here's the question I would pose. What does it mean when things don't turn out the way you plan? Does it mean that God's not part of the mix? What do you do when you find yourself in the middle of circumstances where things are clearly not going to turn out the way you planned or the way they're supposed to turn out? What do you do in those moments? What do you do when the person that you've been praying for who really needs God and really needs God to move in their life and you're praying for them and you think, oh, this is God's going to work and this is so cool. And then they walk away from God entirely, walk away from church, walk away from their family bing, in a story. What do you do when you have been praying for the job opportunity and you've been praying and you get contacted from by them you go through the process you become a finalist then it's just you and one other person and after meeting them and talking to them you're like these are my people i finally found my people in this job land and and it's a 20% raise and then the call comes we'd like to let you know that we chose the other person what do you do in those moments I cry myself to sleep and I eat a whole half gallon of ice cream. Okay, well, what else? I mean, what do you do when you're in a relationship and it's beautiful and it's exciting, but you get to this point where it's nothing but fighting and angriness and and you're barking and they're barking. And then you're thinking, well, at least, you know, we haven't bailed. We're going to make this work. And you're gritting your teeth and you show up to work and you're served papers. And then you realize, oh, (laughs) okay. I mean, what do you do in those moments? What do you do? Do Do you conclude that God has somehow messed up? Hey, God, come on, the plan, baby. What do you, where, you know, hello? Hello, is this thing on? I think for too many of us Americans, we equate good circumstances in life with God's presence. If I have a job that I like and it's paying me what I need, God's, Right here, man. If I'm healthy and my kids are healthy, God's right here, man. If things are going according to the plan, God's right here. God's with me. God's supporting me. God's encouraging me. And I want to make a case that maybe, in fact, probably God's also at work in circumstances that aren't going to according to the plan. And to do that, I want to look into the life of a young man named Daniel. All right? So, Daniel, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. And if you don't know where that is in your Bible, I would urge you to go to what I call the Holy Table of Contents. The Holy, you've never heard of this. Okay. The Holy Table of Contents is at the front of your Bible. I'm a pastor and a trained Pharisee. I can never find Daniel. It's never where I think it's going to be. I'm like... I know it's past the Psalms, but it's before the guys that are real crotchety, but I can never find it. So I go, they're called the minor prophets. I go to the Holy Table of Contents and I look and boom, there's Daniel page 710. And then I go along and my pages are numbered just like yours. So when in doubt, go to the Holy Table of Contents. If you're ever in those Christian settings where you feel like you have to find it, don't. Just go to the Holy Table of Contents. It's what it's there for. It's your navigational tool. It's like Garmin on paper, okay? So I'm just trying to be helpful, okay? So here we go. This is Daniel. And the scenarios that I just mapped out where things aren't going the way you think they're going to go, the way they're supposed to go, that was Daniel. Daniel was the son of a noble nobleman. So they were well-to-do, landed people who lived around the city of Jerusalem. His dad probably was an influencer and and knew the king personally. And Daniel would have been somebody who would have been in the running to be in the court, uh, the royal court in the book of Daniel. And, And he had some good things going on in his life. Unfortunately, through a tragic turn of events, in 605 B.C., This mean guy named Nebuchadnezzar decided, I'm going to invade Judah. (laughs) Off the chariots go. They surround Jerusalem and the Jerusalem leaders go, we surrender. That's what they did. And without a fight, without anything, we surrender. Okay. So 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had this amazing program in place that he took with him everywhere he went when he conquered a country. He would go into the country. And once they capitulated or once they conquered it, they would look around and they would assess the best and brightest and most capable. And then they would take those people and take them back to Babylon. It was just an amazing cultural exchange program. (laughs) And poor Daniel and his buddies from high school found themselves sons of. Of the noble families of Jerusalem. Somewhat educated. Having great potential. They were standing in line. And the the Babylonian army officials. You, 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 go. And off they went to Babylon. So here you are. A young man. And you think your life is going to be this thing. And your dad somebody who knows the king. And you're in. uh, God's chosen people group. God's nation. And. These foreigners show up and ruin everything. And now you're 500 miles away from home and you're having to learn all this new stuff. Well, that's where we pick it up. Verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy and good looking young men, he said. It's many a sorority's idea. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited, suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And so the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Well, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Some of you are going, oh, I know these guys. Yep. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego, or as we called it in Baptist church, Abednego. Okay. Daniel had famous friends, only they're not famous yet. Okay. So he changes their names. And that's kind of significant in and of itself because back then your name was everything. When I went to Wheaton, I got my name changed. Ask my mother anytime. She'll tell you. Oh, yeah, his real name is Mark. But she won't say it that way, I promise. She'll say, his real name is Mark. But he went to college and they called him Max. And then it stuck. I named him Mark. That's his name. But, you know, it's boom. It didn't, for me, it was no big deal. Max, Mark, they all start with M, we're okay. But back then it was a big deal. Daniel's original name, uh, means, my judge is God. But Belshazzar means, may Bel protect his life, another God, right? So Daniel didn't protest, though, notice, because he was convinced that God was at work in the situation. How do I know that? Well, I'm going to cue you in on that, all right? So he, they get enrolled in this three-year course of study. And in this three-year course of study, they're going to learn cuneiform, Aramaic, mathematics... And astrology, not the stuff that appears in the newspaper or online, but like the movement of the stars and stuff like that. Um, It was known as the art of divination. Daniel was taught how to predict the future according to their methods by observing the movement of the stars, the flight patterns of birds. If the birds flew a particular way, it meant one thing. If they flew another way, it meant you would lose the battle. I mean, it was, you know, big stuff. And the peculiarities of, get this, goat entrails and sheep livers. Who knew you could see your future in those body parts? But Daniel didn't protest the course of study because he knew God was at work. And then verse 8. Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Okay, so let me do some splaining. They change his name, no problem. They make him enter a course of study that clearly contradicts what he knows to be true, but he goes through the course of study. They tell him, you're going to eat this stuff, and for a, for a reason, he says, no, I draw the line here. For Daniel, the food thing was, would, in his mind, because of what it meant... He, he would have been in essence saying, you know what? God's no longer my provider. God's no longer my God. I'm totally at the mercy and of the benefit of the king of Babylon. He's it, not Yahweh. And so Daniel, because of that and because of the implication of those food laws, said, nope, I'm drawing a line. I'm not going to cross that line. You can change my name. I'll study the stuff you want me to study. But I'm not going to say to myself and everyone else, that the king of Babylon's it and not Yahweh. I'm telling you, Yahweh's God, and that's who I'm going to serve and be faithful to. So he draws a line. Well, let's look at what happens. Uh, Verse 9 and following. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered you to eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. That's called motivation. So Daniel doesn't stop there, though. Daniel, instead of going over the guy's head, goes under the guy's head. Goes someone lower down the food chain. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us, verse 12, for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggested and tested them for 10 days. If Daniel had believed that God, in fact, had abandoned them because they had been abducted, because they had been taken captive, it would have made perfect sense for him to go ahead and eat the king's food. Because, again, in Daniel's mind and according to these laws that I'm not going to explain in full today, uh, what Daniel would have been saying was, "Nope, I'm the king is my provider, not Yahweh. Okay? but Daniel, Daniel was convinced that even though things had not turned out the way he thought they would, that God was still at work and he had a line that he wasn't going to cross, a moral line for him, and he stuck his ground and. Daniel wasn't wrong in concluding that God was at work in his life. See, you and I have the benefit that we know the rest of the story. We know that he tells King Nebuchadnezzar and interprets this dream and is made third in the kingdom. We know that he's thrown into a den of lions and they don't eat him. Daniel didn't know any of those things were coming down the road. He just knew, hey, I lived here. You yanked me out of my home. You put me here in this godless situation. But God was at work. And there are several things in this passage that the Bible, that the Holy Spirit would want you and I to pick up on. And the first is verse 2. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim. The author, the Holy Spirit, God's wanting us to know that, no, it wasn't just a random coincidence that the Babylonian army showed up and laid siege to Jerusalem. The Lord gave that army commander victory over Jerusalem. And then down in verse nine, now God had given the chief of staff respect and affection for Daniel. Boom! There's God again at work in the situation. God was the one who had caused Ashpenaz to go, man, Daniel, woo, love it, baby. God was the one who did that. We call that in prayer. When you're praying, we, we, we that the word we use when we're praying for that was we say, "Give us favor, give so and so favor." That's what this is. Daniel had favor. With Ashpenaz, God was responsible for that. And then verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. It was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, who had handed over Jehoiakim. It was God, not Daniel's winsome personality that had given him favor. And it was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was behind Daniel's abilities and skills to interpret dreams. God was at work. From time to time, you and I are going to find ourselves in circumstances where we look at the circumstances and we go, where are you, God? Because it hasn't turned out the way we want or it hasn't turned out the way we think it should. But if we can learn anything from the life of Daniel, it's that no matter what the circumstances that you face, God's at work. And that's what I want you guys to walk away with today. God's at work. All right. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you're, you know, going on in your heart. And here's the thing. We started off the service by reading Psalm 73, and I could tell by the look on several of your faces man, that's in the Psalms? Yes, the Psalms are raw, unfiltered emotion. If you feel like God's abandoned you, tell Him, Oh God, where are you, oh smiting smiter of people? Smite them! He can take it. You're angry, you're upset, you feel alone, tell them, vent it. That's the Psalms. It's inspired, it's right in God's Word for that very reason. But I want you to know and I want you to remind yourself when you find, your, when you find yourself in a situation where you feel like God has abandoned you, where you feel like God's off far away, your feelings in that moment may not actually reflect reality. Okay, let me say that again. In that moment, your feelings may not reflect reality. Daniel probably felt some measure of that. Anybody would, getting yanked out of their home and being held captive, taken against your will, 500 miles away, to do stuff that you know is not right. But at the end, in Daniel's life, God was at work. And that's true in your life, too. God's at work in your life right now, even though you may not be able to see it. All right? Here's here's the rest of the story, okay, for me. I told you I took a year to be an elementary school janitor. Do you know the elementary school where I worked? This one right here. Oh, what a weird coincidence. (laughs) No, it's not a coincidence. And when I was an elementary school janitor, you know what God taught me that I needed to know as a pastor? Serve. Pastors do sometimes thankless things. Janitors do sometimes thankless things. If you can clean up in flu season 17 throw ups, you can handle being a pastor. I didn't know they were connected. When Asbury asked me what I would require, I told them you should make all these guys be elementary school janitors. And they laughed at my face. I was like, no, I'm serious. (laughs) They can't clean up 17 throw ups. They have no business standing up in front of people. Okay. God was at work and I didn't know the whole picture. And if you look at the Old Testament and you read through some of these people, they have in their mind how it's going to play out. Moses, Joshua, David. I mean, let's just pick one. David, Samuel shows up. You are the anointed one of God and then runs for his life. I'm going to be the king. Awesome. Yeah. And then Saul tries to kill him for how many years? Okay. surely in David's mind, there were moments of, hey, this whole king thing, um, that's not really working out for me right now. No, see, person after person after person in the Old Testament found themselves in circumstances that were not what they had expected, not what they had planned, and yet God was at work right there in the middle of those stinky circumstances. So what I would say to you is, right where you are right now, God's at work. And, and just so that you know, there's a couple of things that we can draw out for this. One is, just like Daniel, if you find yourself in a situation at work where you feel like, hey, I'm having to cross the line morally, I don't want to, you know, go to the people, go to the top, go to the bottom and go to the bottom people and the people with a proposal. Hey, here's a line that I don't want to cross. What if we tried this instead? Try it for this long and see if you don't get the same results. And if not, no, you know, go ahead. Lop off heads, including mine. But if it does work, change the policy, change how you're going about it. You'll be surprised how many times God will work in circumstances like that. All right? um, and, and another thing is, when you're in those circumstances uh, and you're having those feelings, one of the things that I will pray is, hey, God, what do you want me to learn? Is there something you're wanting me to learn or see? And God delights in that kind of humility, go, oh, okay, well, here's where I'm at work in the situation. And I know you're wanting this, but this is actually the, the project of the moment or the day or the hour. All right, So... I want you guys to know this morning that despite what you may feel, despite what you may think, God is actually at work in your circumstances. He does not love Daniel more than he loves you. He doesn't. And if he did that for Daniel and he didn't abandon Daniel, he's not going to abandon you either. All right. Make no mistake about it. God is at work in your life. I want to pray for you. And then I want I want to uh, want you to see something.